You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Each week, we explore some aspect of the past, present, or future of intelligence and espionage. Please support the show for free by leaving us a five-star review and recommending the show to a friend. Consider it a 60-second sacrificial offering to appease those hard-headed, lofty gods of the algorithm. Coming up next on SpyCast. It doesn't matter what they believe in, if they're of the socialist bent or the nationalist bent, they have a rethink about how they're going to do things. And this is what leads to the first attempts at, at terrorism. The great-grandfather of our own century, the long 19th century, as it has been called, that is, an era from the French Revolution in 1789 through to the beginning of the First World War in 1914, was a time of tremendous social and political upheaval. States were formed, nations were awoken, and the Industrial Revolution rearranged the very fabric of society. It was an era of revolutionary thought, political violence and assassination. It was also, as we explore in this week's episode, an age which ushered in the birth of modern terrorism and in many ways modern intelligence agencies. To discuss this, this week's guest is James Crossland, author of the book The Rise of Devils, Fear and the Origins of Modern Terrorism. James is an expert on intelligence, terrorism and propaganda and Professor of International History at Liverpool John Moores University in the UK. In this episode, James and I discuss the origins of modern terrorism, 19th century spy masters, covert action and assassinations, intelligence as a weapon, philosophy and ideology's effect on history, and the power of fear. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are Spycast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Well, I'm so glad that we got around to doing this, James. We've been uh, trying to make this happen for a while, so I'm really glad I'm getting a chance to speak to you about the origins of modern terrorism. So thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. And I thought that a good place to start, I think it's quite interesting in your book, 
you have dug out this headline from the New York Times in 1881 calling for a war on terrorism. Uh, so in the book, you connect this into the, the more recent war on terrorism. So I just wondered if you could start off, like help us understand the, the war on terrorism that you came across this, described in that New York Times article. What, what were they talking about? What was the war on terrorism of 1881 as opposed to 2001? Well, not unlike the 2001 version, it was prompted by a terrorist spectacular. And in this case, it was what was arguably the most significant terrorist attack in terms of publicity, in terms of global reach, and in terms of, I guess, generating uh, fear of this generation. And that was the assassination of Alexander II, Tsar of Russia, on the streets of St. Petersburg in 1881. He was killed by a suicide bomber who was working for a group that was arguably the world's first proper terrorist organization in terms of it having a structure, funding, bomb makers, etc., hierarchies. And that was a group by the name of Narodnavolia, or uh, the People's Will. The death of the Tsar, this was after a campaign by People's Will of about, I think it was maybe seven or eight attempts to kill him, involving timed IEDs um, and various other forms of attacks that were quite innovative for their time. When they finally get their man, it grabs global headlines, as evidenced by the New York Times article. And the phrase, obviously, it catches the eye of a 21st century reader, the phrase war on terrorism. In this instance, it's, it was just as opaque in that there was this response to, there's this thing called terrorism, we're very scared of it, um, and we need to do something about it. Beyond that, there's not really specifics. It was just a newspaper headline, but to my mind, when I was working on Rise of Devils, it reflected a, a wider mood of the time where you have these various campaigns by intelligence chiefs, private detectives, private detective agencies, police, and in some cases, quite energetic civilians who are all getting involved in this campaign to fight terrorism. And it's, it's very fragmented. It's manifest in different ways in different places. But to me, it reflected the same driving force of the war on terror we're familiar with, which was that, that fear, that anxiety, that, that sense that there's something impending around the corner and we must do something about it. And let's discuss uh, that assassination before we uh, broaden out a little bit more. So what were the consequences of this assassination? So some assassinations lead to a revolution or to significant change. What was the, the effect in Russia? What was the effect geopolitically? Um, help us understand that assassination and what it meant. Bluntly, tactical success, strategic failure on a massive scale. The promise made by Norod Navalia was that the death of the Tsar would usher in a new age in Russia. They were nihilists, and the creed of nihilism broadly speaking, was if you get rid of the Tsar, the church topples, the state topples, Russia becomes a tabula rasa and you start again, which is what these people wanted. Cutting off the head of the snake thinking the body would die did not work. Instead, what happened was when Tsar Alexander II was killed, Tsar Alexander III came to the throne and he was far more repressive, far more married to the autocratic tradition 
And he came down like a ton of bricks on not just, not on the Wallia, but on any and all subversives within the Russian Empire. It was, it was quite brutal, the, the repercussions. Northern Volaya itself existed, depending on how you want to look at it as an organization, maybe limped on until about 1883. I mean, there's still people claiming membership into the 1890s, but realistically, operationally, it's, it's shut down within a couple of years. There is no revolution. There is an interesting epilogue to it in that Lemon's younger brother becomes a member of Naranavolia, and his death at the hands of the Okhrana is something that obviously sticks with Lenin. So we do get a long tail. We do get uh, an outcome. And both Lenin and Trotsky were big fans of Naranavolia and lauded them as the, 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 pre, the precursors whose, whose legacy we must honor. So there is something there, but in the immediate sense, no, they didn't achieve their aims. Mm. And just to draw that tale a little bit further back into the past, so is the, the people as well, is this similar to the Petrashevsky circle that Dostoevsky is a part of and he goes through this mock execution which is seriously going to affect your uh, your nerves for, for quite a significant time afterwards, I can imagine. But, but the Petrashevsky circle, if I remember, when we say subver subversive, they're basically against... Tsarist autocracy and uh, serfdom and things like that. So we're not talking like completely crazy stuff. There's a there's a rough line. So what you're talking about with the Petrushevsky circle and Tchaikovsky and various other sort of thinking and reading groups are these people who've got these ideas. Socialism, Jacobinism comes in, uh, is imported to an extent, and nihilism is a homegrown ideology. And it's really just thinking and, and imagining what could be. The turn happens really in the 1860s with a nihilist group that's got the most unambiguous terrorist organization name you've ever heard, Hell. They call themselves Hell. And they establish themselves with this idea to take these ideas and put them into practice. Now, they don't really do it. They're a bit of a, a, bit of a joke as an organization, in fact. And they're rounded up very quickly because uh, they're very easily infiltrated. But their legacy is honored. And Norona Volia is very much the next iteration of that with better organization, with a dedicated chemists to build bombs, with a fun funding structure, as I say. And th there is this evolution there where because the reforms that they want are not happening or they're not happening fast enough, Tsar Alexander II does attempt reforms in the 1860s, but they are just enough to annoy the uh, hardliners and, and not enough to please the true reformers. So he ends up putting himself in this, in this pretty rotten situation, and the peoples will capitalize on that by taking the, the next step that they see being the logical and necessary step to actually force the pace of history in Russia. And just, just briefly, James, when we're talking about nihilism, what are we talking about here? You know, when I when I think of nihilism, I think of Friedrich Nietzsche, I think of punk rock music and so forth. But in this specific context, what are what are we talking about? Uh well they, they don't believe in nothing. There's a big Lebowski reference there for people of a certain age. Um <laughs> but uh the no, the the nihilists are again starts as a, a thought experiment really in the eighteen forties, eighteen fifties, and this idea of what if the state, the church, and everything that we that holds Russia up, the autocracy, 
What if that's just gone and we start again? As for what that was meant to look like, that's where nihilism sort of fell off a cliff a bit. Um, there were different different strands of thought, as there always are with revolutionary ideologies. But the 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 main thing was that they they saw the Tsar as being the the linchpin of a system that was impossible to change without something dramatic happening, and that's where the the, the violence creeps in. But initially, it's not a violent ideology; it, it becomes more violent as time goes on. Mm -hmm. And and just to uh, finish off looking at Russia before we fan out, so tell us the the story of intelligence and all of this, uh, the spy masters, the the people that are sending penetration agents out into groups in Russia or across Europe, and um, what what's going on there? Because intelligence, formal intelligence as we understand it now, is more of a MI5 and MI6, 1909, people say this is the beginning, but but there's there's things going on there as well, the Okrana, and then we come to the Cheka later on, and the KGB and the FSB today. Like, What's the story of Russia in this second half of the 19th century with regards to what we now think of as intelligence? Well, the intelligence apparatus is part of the the system that the nihilists support because it is built in at this point to to Zardom as part of what 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 keeps it going. And prior to the Okhrana in in the 1860s, what what we're talking about is the third section, who are the first to really come across the nihilists and to tackle them. And they do it by means that are very conventional to the age. They have infiltration agents. They open uh, letters. They follow people, they have informers. It's the typical stuff that any nascent intelligence service of this period is practicing. They also um, can be quite brutal at times. And this is one thing that I highlight in Rise of Devils is that the, the cycle of, of revenge and retribution from repression is very marked in Russia and in France in this period, where the police come down very hard, they cast a wide net, They, when a terrorist incident occurs, they unleash a dragnet, they bring everyone in. Some of these people end up in Siberia, who've got nothing to do with what's happened. And you get a process of radicalization that comes from that. Um, and there's actually some examples of terrorists who are, who are hauled in, thrown in the Peter and Paul fortress. They come out far worse than when they went in, far more radicalized, far more angry. And that perpetuates the cycle. The third section are rolled up after or just prior to the um, the assassination of the Tsar because they're doing a terrible job. They are a classic example of an intelligence service that grows moribund, doesn't adapt to new challenges, is very much stuck in the old ways, whilst their enemies, people's will, are, are evolving. They are, as I mentioned, arguably the world's first terrorist organization and terrorism at this time is is pretty new no one knows what counterterrorism is let alone what terrorism is so we can perhaps you know understand what why the third section fell down a bit but it's in the wake of the the intelligence failures of the third section that we get a, a restructure and the okrana is born which is is very much a continuation of the third section albeit a bit a bit more stringent a bit more tightly um monitored and it has as its head uh, the infamous spymaster Peter Rakovsky, who is a, a, a figure who looms very large over the 
nascent war on terrorism and really becomes a, 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 a boogeyman of sorts for, for not just nihilists, but anarchists and socialists and all manner of, of, of enemies of not just the Tsar, but figures of authority across Europe. He casts his net very wide, and he becomes a, the uber spy master by the, the end of the 19th century. And the Okhrana, when, is that, when does that come into being? So that's coming in in the 1880s, um, and its evolution, it really, it really kicks up a notch and becomes something different to what the third section was, I'd say, around about late 1880s into the early 1890s. Under Rakovsky, who sees this as an intelligence service that shouldn't just operate beyond Russia's borders, but has to. And he sets up a bureau in Paris. He forms connections with Scotland Yard. He conceives of the terrorist threat as an international threat. And he's not the only one. It's around about the 1890s that intelligence services start to tweak to the fact that this is an international issue. International problems require international policing, and that requires cooperation, coordination. So he he is a, kind of at the crest of a wave of thinking about intelligence being something that is not just about national security, but policing international problems. The way he goes about it, though, is very um, nefarious, to not say like the Interpol. least. <laughs> well, no, no, it is not like Interpol. <laughs> it's a one-man empire in many respects. He's a power broker. He is... Using a lot of the tried and true methods, he's very big on the agent provocateur. He loves uh, deep penetration, like infiltration into into the actual organizations, entire webs of agents, some of whom don't even know that they're spying on each other. You get these kind of farcical scenarios where there's spies spying on spies because they think one spy or the other is actually a actually a radical. It all gets a bit out of control. And and he's he's really at uh, the forefront of 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 pushing this very very illegal let's say form of of uh, policing that casts an odor that that gets to the public. I mean, this is the era where the the fear is not just about terrorists, but about the people who are tracking the terrorists, about the snoopers. Uh, Rakovsky plays a big part in that, so he's a very important figure in 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 the book. And Rakovsky, um, he's one of the people who's reputed to have been involved in concocting the protocols of the elders of Zion as, as my memory served me correctly there and and why did why did he do this well he inherits a tradition that, i mean the, the okrana was very anti-semitic as an institution and he himself there's some really quite nasty stuff that he writes at this time where he's talking about sort of race theory and he's talking about the the idea that um, Jews and socialists sort of share the same blood and things of that nature. So he's he's wired that way. And this is where the first accusations of impending protocols comes in. To the best of my knowledge, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I, I understand why he was perhaps has, has had the finger pointed at him. But um, I don't think the evidence is, is necessarily there. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good candidate. But he's part of that milieu of conspiratorial thinking, paranoia, anti-Semitism, which blends into the, a paranoia about socialism, communism, and the rest at this time. He is the archetype of that sort of fear vortex.
To help you digest this episode, here's a short and simplified primer on how the long 19th century, remember this is the period between 1789 and 1914, fed into the First World War that took place between 1914 and 1918. People spend their entire professional life studying periods like this one or events like World War I. So what follows is a quick pass at 70,000 feet. If you want more granular detail, you're going to have to spend time on the ground. Some of the key things that would feed into World War I would be nationalism. The relatively modern phenomena of nationalism was unleashed during this period. It led to the creation of new states, such as Belgium in 1831, Italy in 1861 and Germany in 1871. This upended the prevailing balance of power in Europe and it also fueled rivalries. For example, French and German notions of nationalism would clash repeatedly all the way up until the end of the Second World War. Imperialism. While nationalism was on the rise in Europe, these European powers were busy carving up the rest of the globe building their empires and competing for colonies and resources. The so-called Scramble for Africa was one example, and that continent would be an area where French, British and German interests clashed. It was not only these countries that went to war in 1914 then, it was also their empires. For example, during World War I, nearly 200,000 Senegalese West African soldiers fought for France while over a million Indians were mobilised for Great Britain. Industrialization. The Industrial Revolution upended many things during this period, but especially the nature of warfare. In some ways, military commanders like Napoleon and Wellington were closer to Caesar and Alexander the Great 2,000 years before them, riding on horseback, fighting with swords, forming up in lines on open ground, than they were to the kind of mechanised slaughter that the world witnessed on the battlefields of Europe during the Great War. For example, the British suffered almost 60,000 casualties on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Yes, that's a 24-hour period, the first day. To put that in perspective, the entire British army at the Battle of Waterloo 100 years beforehand was probably less than half that number at 30,000 souls. Communications. The 19th century was an era of profound change in the area of communications and transportation. Railways, telegraphs, the motor vehicle, warships that could function without sails, aircraft. This fed into nationalism. For example, people in France who had been relatively cut off from one another can now be transported from one end of the country to the other in a day. The state can now expand its reach into the lives of peasants and even the most remote communities, communicating in a common tongue, educating their children as was common in the rest of the country, mobilising those children who now grew up to see themselves not through the lens of the region first, but as Frenchmen. We can see these forces looking backwards, but imagine the disorientating vertigo of the modern that our ancestors experienced as forms of life that had been stable for centuries and sometimes millennia melted into air. We'll be right back after this.
Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Let's uh, discuss some of the other people that are assassinated during this period. So we've spoke about Alexander II. Let's broaden it out before we go back to look at where some of the the drivers of this come from. So, I mean, just a, a, a very short list, uh, an attempt on Abraham Lincoln, 1861, Alexander II, 1881, uh, the Empress of Austria, 1898, the President of France, 1894, uh, McKinley, 1901, an attempt on Teddy Roosevelt, 1912, Gavrilo Princip, 1914. Like, what's going on here? Well, the, 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 attempt, the attempt on Lincoln in uh, 1861 is, a, is an interesting one because... That's an outlier to some extent. Yeah, because it may, it, may, it, may it may not have actually been real. Uh, again, it's one of these where you, you, you sort of have to look at it in different different ways. Was this something that was put up by um, the infamous Alan Pinkerton, who is handling Lincoln's security at this time, or is or is getting to the point where he can handle Lincoln's security? Was this something he put up? This idea that Lincoln was going to be assassinated in Baltimore, put the put the idea in Lincoln's head, and on that basis is able to pull off this operation where they they basically smuggle Lincoln through on on his, his train ride to his inauguration. And on that basis, he, he gets Lincoln's respect and, and ingratiates himself with him. That's one example of, again, what I was talking about before, where you have these 
spies of the era who it's hard to tell exactly if they are responding to true threats or creating their own. Another great example that is just a fantastic story from a, a, a really interesting character and the guy who was kind of the, the inspiration in some ways for Rakowski, the man who, who preceded him. Prussian spy master by the name of Wilhelm Steber, who in many ways sets the, the, the bar for paranoid, almost pathological thinking regarding revolutionary conspiracies. And he's active in the 1850s, uh, trailing Karl Marx. He despises Karl Marx and he believes that Marx is about to unleash this violent revolution. So in the process, he makes himself into this very, very big figure in terms of law enforcement. He becomes iconic in some ways. And he has a fall from grace when it's discovered that he's actually uh, doing things in a very illegal way, falsifying evidence, um, using agent provocateurs, that sort of thing. He gets back into the good graces of Otto von Bismarck in 1863 when he, he comes back to Prussia. And it looks like he stages not even a mock assassination. He basically puts a, a dummy of Bismarck in a horse and cart, has it rolled up the Wilhelmstrasse. And then when uh, an anarchist or, or a, a revolutionary of some kind who may well have been a plant paid by Steber, he comes out, he shoots the dummy. Steber is able to claim, well, your highness, your, your, your life is in danger, so you need me. And that's one of the many little tricks that he plays to, to bring himself in. He's also front and center at various other attempts on the life of uh, Bismarck and, and, and the Kaiser during this period, who we were both shot at on the, and indeed shot properly on a few occasions. So you have dignitaries in, in Prussia who, who have attempts on their life, emperors in Russia. You have probably, I, I think, one of the most significant assassinations of this period is the assassination of Empress Elizabeth of Austria or, or in um, 1898. So her assassination, she is murdered on the shores of Lake Geneva. She's uh, stabbed. And she's very much a, a darling. Uh, she's, she's beloved in many ways amongst, amongst the monarchs of Europe. So her death has this resonance that perhaps the assassination of, say, Tsar Alexander II does not. She's a more sympathetic figure. And her death has, has real consequences because a few months later, the first real effort to police terrorism internationally is launched in Rome at uh, an anti-anarchist congress, uh, which is attended by, I think, about 50 delegates from 20-odd countries. Police chiefs, politicians, they come together and decide that this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. We need to do something. We need to co cooperate and coordinate because the heads of state are dropping like flies. And not just that, anarchists are setting off bombs all over the place during this period. So her death is very significant. Others that occur, not so much. I mean, McKinley's being shot in 1901 by, by an anarchist. It does have a knock-on effect of, in many ways, it gives birth to the the secret service as it is today and, and what it does for presidents. There is an upping of security around presidents from there on out, not to the level that we expect today, but, but there is at least a thought. The way in which McKinley is shot, he's at a, an event in Buffalo, he's shaking hands. This guy just walks up to him with a gun under a handkerchief and just 
shoots him in the stomach. So that kind of breach of security is something that, that gets on the radar after that. So some of these do have, have repercussions in terms of how the counterterrorism side of the equation is, is, is evaluated, definitely. But let's go back to the Lincoln assassination for a minute because I find Alan Pinkerton a really fascinating figure and not just because he was born in Glasgow. Um, yeah, tell the listeners a little bit more about him. Why is he significant? Uh, it's a name that you hear a lot for people that look at American intelligence or counter-terrorism and so forth. So just who, who was he? Why is he significant? I think Pinkerton's significant lies in the fact that he very much wrote his own history. And a lot of that history is... Um, generous with with uh, what is real and what is not. Um, he seems to have been a guy who, who he, he loved the, the game. He loved working in shadows. He loved the underbelly of, of, of his work. He comes to the United States with a mind to, to set up, he sets himself up in Chicago and develops what becomes a, the Pinkerton Detective Agency. And it's always very hazy exactly what is meant by the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Because on the one hand, yes, it's a private detective agency, but during its during Alan Pinkerton's lifetime, it goes from being trying to provide presidential security to supposedly, and, and Pinkerton's claim was that it was the, the foundation of the US intelligence service during the Civil War, which isn't really true. Um, but I mean, it sounds good. And then there, there's rumors in, in 1859 when uh, John Brown, after the raid on Harpers Ferry, when, when he's uh, waiting for his execution, there's rumors that Pinkerton is going to spring him. He's going to use his heavies to, you know, bust him out of jail. And then later on, of course, the, this, this, this all takes a, a pretty horrendous turn and the Pinkertons become associated with what, what I think they're most infamous for, which is strike breaking and uh, the suppression of, 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 of uh, worker agitation, uh, usually with, in, in very violent ways and being hired guns for capital. So he etches his name in, in many ways into this era as someone who is both an exemplar of, of the Stieber and Rakowski type in that he seems to thrive off the nefariousness of what he does. That leads him to perhaps falsify what he does for purposes of fame, money, power, perhaps a combination of all three. At the same time, he writes his own history. He's able to, to make himself an iconic figure. But when you actually look at what the Pinkertons get up to, he's not really carrying out counterterrorism. He's going around <laughs> kicking people's heads in, <laughs> um, demanding a, a, an eight-hour working day. So so he, he he's a very different beast, but at the same time, I think he reflects the same. I mean, the, the Baltimore plot, if if it was real, um, was born of a paranoid mindset on his part. He 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 was thinking he was seeing conspiracies everywhere, and then perhaps rightly so. I mean, this was a fissile time, obviously, in American politics, and you've got a lot of um, anti-Lincoln agitation at this time. So so again, it, it it's about taking things too far. Just as Stieber, he was right. You know, uh, Marx was a revolutionary, and. There were conspiracies of of various radical groups during his lifetime, but it didn't mean that they were all working together to launch some massive, you know, global revolution to to destroy God, kings, and capital. But that's where this thinking took these men most of the time. 
is that not an, ine an inevitable consequence of the job? If you're trying to protect an important person or you're trying to make sure they don't get hurt, then, I mean, you have to see monsters everywhere to some extent. Well, yes. And, and the problem in this period is that there were a lot of monsters. It's the way in which they were... Well, there's two things at play. The first is that the, these, these men didn't really have restraints, which is an important fact. There's no real checks and balances on these guys. And, and, and in part, that's because they're dealing with, a, with an innovative threat. And so no one really knows exactly the scope of, of uh, terrorism in the, the 1860s, 1870s, no one really knows what it looks like. The term isn't really being used. We only apply that retrospectively to these acts of political violence. By the time you get to the 1880s, 1890s, terrorism is understood as this, this form of political violence that often takes the form of targeted killings, uh, public bombings, perhaps agitation on a, on a wider scale. But by and large, there's an understanding of the non-state actor using violence or threat of same to try and further a political and more often than not a radical political agenda. That at least is understood. But how you attack the cause of that action, how you actually find these people, what these people look like, that that's that's where it comes off the rails and that's where the paranoia kicks in because they are they are chasing ghosts a lot of the time. And one of the things that I follow the thread of through Rise of Devils and it starts with Stieber and it, and it, it mutates over time and it, it there's various boogeymen who who assume the role of of being at the head of this but there is this theory that goes right through this period of all these different groups be they nihilists anarchists socialists Irish republicans doesn't matter if their ideologies aren't compatible there is this theory that they are all somehow connected that they are all coordinating, that this is all part of one mass conspiracy. And that, I think, is, is something that a lot of the police chiefs and spy masters of this period are hardwired to believe. That informs the way that they, they develop their CT approaches. Almost when you were talking there, it's almost a little bit like uh, in Batman when the forces of the night all collaborate together to, you know, bring <laughs> the, the, make, make make Gotham City the, theirs. The sort special of thing. episode where where all the supervillains come together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that, that's how they're conceiving of this. Is that there is some sort of and this the, you know this the the classic sort of anarchist literature of the eighteen nineties where it talks about these you know secret cabals of anarchists meeting in Geneva and there's the classic tale of Harmon, the anarchist who goes and, and, and gets himself an airship and he's, he's able to, and he staffs it with all these radicals and they, they, they attack London from the sky and all this. I mean, this is, this, <laughs> this is the, the mindset of the time. There's, there's so much anxiety, there's so much fear. Um, and the, the police are just as susceptible, if not more so, than the, the average person on the street reading this stuff in the newspaper. What similarities and differences are there between them? Like these nascent spy masters, are they are they all kind of like playing a similar kind of tune, uh, or are they completely different and they just can't be put in the same bag together? Or they? It seems to me from what you've said and from what I read in the book that they're all there operating in this space where there are real threats uh, and and the propaganda of the of the deed and assassination but then there's they're, they're also using information they're manipulating information what we more conventionally think of as propaganda whether it be you know the protocols or whether it be Pinkerton embellishing his own you know role in the American Civil War and so forth so yeah just help us understand as someone that's looked at these figures three 
proto formal spy masters? What what's going on with them? They all, I think, inflate in inflate their importance. That is a, a, a key feature that they all share. And again, it's it's whether so they could have they could have been academics, basically. <laughs> very good. Um, yeah, they they do very much inflate their importance and their centrality. I mean, Stieber loves this idea that he is this anti-radical crusader. Um, absolutely loves it. Rakovsky, for his part, is not nearly as much of a glory hound. I think there's only two photographs that exist of Peter Rakovsky. And Pinkerton is obviously more of a glory hound. In fact, Rakovsky is somewhat of an anomaly in that respect in that he seemed to enjoy being in the shadows and kind of the, the puppet master behind the scenes. Another figure who who warrants attention here to kind of bring it all together, who, who embodies all of these qualities, is, is William Melville. Works for Special Branch, you know, when that's founded in 1883, to combat the Fenian threat in Britain. He then goes on to be work for MI5 when that is created. He's and he's he, he's a good continuity between those two periods, really, because he's there in these kind of ad hoc days of the 1880s during the the Fenian Dynamite War, which was the first real terrorist campaign on on British soil in the 1880s. About 15 bombings by Irish Republicans, and he's in the thick of that. And he sees that through until the anarchist threat in the 1890s. He does that. And then, as I say, he goes on to work for MI5. So he sees a lot in his career. And particularly during the anarchist period, he really becomes a glory hound. And he understands that you can use the media. He invites journalists along when he's raiding anarchist clubs. And he, he wants these reports of him, you know, dashing into these dens of you know villainy and kicking down the door and finding bombs that his men have probably planted because again melville uh, worked with Zukovsky, and this is where he's, he's similar to the others in that he's very big on agent provocateurs he he's very big on setting people up he pays informers he does stuff that's very under the table but his public facing image is of, is of this crusader for good and this guy who is keeping the anarchists at bay in Britain. So he kind of represents the amalgamation of all of these. He, he, he grandstands, he boasts, he inflates his importance. He works nefariously in, in, in how he goes about his business. But he also, and this is an important point as well, because you know, he criticizes these, these men all day, but he does come up with some innovations and things that stick. And just briefly for our listeners, could you just give them two sentences on on the Fenians? You spoke about the Fenian threat. Uh, so Fenians are starting from the 1840s, really campaigning for home rule in Ireland, broadly speaking. And I use the word Fenians to, to encapsulate a wider group that encompasses several groups and some of whom do not all get along. But by and large, the, the idea is to, to uh, emancipate Ireland from, from British rule using violence and as i say they laid down the first terrorist campaign on on british soil in the 1880s this comes on the heels of northern volia as well so this is all happening at the same time these two really important dynamite campaigns in russia and in, and in, in britain which 
are, are, are prototypes for the kind of, of, of terrorist campaigns that we see in the, in the 20th century, these kind of strategic bombing campaigns. So they're very integral to the story. During the long 19th century, there are several important developments in Irish history, independence, and the role of terrorism to advance that cause. In 1798, there is a rebellion against British rule by the Society of United Irishmen. They are supported by the revolutionary French, but ultimately defeated. Nevertheless, the uprising inspires a new generation of revolutionaries and the genie of nationalism unleashed by the French Revolution will prove very difficult to put back into the bottle. In 1801, Ireland becomes formally a part of the United Kingdom, in part because of the 1798 uprising and the French threat. A large percentage of the British army in the 19th century would be Irish, hovering around 40% at times. In line with other revolutions that took place across Europe that year, in 1848, there's another uprising, this time by a group of Irish nationalists called the Young Islanders. It is again suppressed. In 1858, the Fenian movement to overthrow British rule takes shape. It was named after warriors in Irish mythology, the Fianna. 1881 to 85, there are a series of Fenian bombings by a militant faction of the movement in England and Scotland. The Fenian movement dissipates, but the so-called Irish question doesn't go away. As someone once said, Ireland was like Banquo's ghost at the feast of the British Empire. And hearing you talk about the late 19th century, early 20th century, this is a period that always reminds me of the the Sherlock Holmes novels. Um, you know, they're they're all set around about then, and um, there's the fear of the rise of Germany, and there's assassins and all, all of this kind of stuff. Did you look at any fiction when you were when you were researching your book? Well, yes, I, I looked quite a bit at the anarchist fiction because it's it's hard to ignore it. There was so much of it, and it, it was fascinating looking at some of the stories about anarchists during this period and the idea that this is all connected, that there's some vast conspiracy. That idea that police have been stewing on for decades, that is a, a, a recurring motif of the literature. What is anarchism? When does it become an issue? It's very prevalent throughout this whole period. It's not the Sex Pistols, it's something else, right? Uh, no, more's the pity. Um, uh, so <laughs> anarchism is, is again, a bit like nihilism, born out of the same period, roughly the 1840s. And it's the idea, broadly speaking, of um, disassembling the state and, and empowering the individual. Now, there are different forms of anarchism where you get anarchism about empowering small groups rather than individuals. And anarchism that bleeds over into almost like communist thinking. So it does evolve over time, but broadly speaking, it's, it's raison d'etre is to, to get rid of the existing understandings of, of the state of society and to, to try something different 
in which the the individual and the the capacity to self govern is 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 uh, more recognised. Now, where that turns violent is that, well, there's a there's a couple of it, it's a it's a process by which it becomes violent. Much like the nihilists, it doesn't happen overnight. One of the stories I look at in Rise of Devils is this period that I think is really important, where a nihilist uh, terrorist from Russia by the name of Sergei Nechev, he travels to Geneva and he meets with Mikhail Bakunin, who's a famous anarchist thinker, who is nearing the end of his career at this point. Bakunin has had a life spent doing old school revolutionary stuff, take to the streets, man the barricades, storm the Bastille, that sort of thing. And Nechev represents the different generation. He is looking at it and saying, well, actually, you know, what, what about targeted killings? What about killing police officers? What about bombings? He represents a new generation of thought. And when these two get together, it, it does, I think, form this really important point of confluence between the, the, the development of terrorism as a tactic, which is something that I think Nechev makes quite a contribution to. In 1869, he writes a treatise called The Catechism of a Revolutionist, which is basically a primer for how to self-radicalize. And if you substitute the word revolutionist from the text and you put terrorist in there, you've got something that you could find online today. It's, it's a really um, a, a terrifying document. And again, it's 1869, as far back as then, he's talking about how you have to cut yourself off from all humanity. You have to sit yourself in a room and sort of meditate on the things you hate and, and how you can gain retribution and all this sort of stuff. It's a really sinister stuff. And, and, so, and so you get this meeting of old school anarchist thought with this new, more malevolent form of political violence. And from there, I think anarchism starts to take more of a turn towards violence. But when it, when it really kicks off in terms of being terroristic is, I'd say, the late 1880s. And part of it is because it is a self-radicalizing ideology. It's very easy at this time to pick up an anarchist magazine. Because of censorship laws not being necessarily that tight, and even if they are, because there's so many underground printing presses, there's every chance you pick up one of these anarchist magazines. And in addition to finding these wonderful you know, ideological passages about how the world can be made better in an anarchist utopia, you might find something in there about, well, we, we, have, to, we have to kill the kings. We, we have to build bombs. There were some magazines of this period that actually had recipes for bombs in the back of them. Anyone can pick this up. And in the 1880s, 1890s, we're coming off the back of, a, of the, the long depression of the 1870s or in the midst of it. We've got people being laid off work. We've got worker agitation. This is a really fissile period. Um, in, in the midst of the second industrial revolution, you've got a lot of angry young men. They're reading this stuff and they're self-radicalizing. And it's not a coincidence that it's the 1890s, really, the late 1880s, early 1890s, that the anarchist wave really kicks off. And one of the, the things that I was thinking about as well was, you know, France. I think France plays quite an important and interesting role here. And you mentioned it earlier, so Rakowski spends a lot of time in Paris, uh, earlier in the century, Marx is in Paris, Paris is this 
hotbed that's for men of ideas and so forth. And and then in 1848, we have the the, the Communist Manifesto, the uh, the revolution, the 1851 coup by Napoleon, uh, Napoleon, well, Napoleon the first nephew. Then we have the the Paris Commune going later on. So w- what's going on in, in in France at this time? Like, why does it play such a a kind of interesting and, and pivotal role in, in all, on all of this? Well, part of it is the revolutionary tradition. Um, you have the earlier generation in the 1850s who are really looking back to the the French Revolution and, and wanting to be the heirs to that. And even at the time of the Paris Commune in 1871, you've got people who are looking back to the original Commune of, of the 1790s and saying, well, you know, we, we're going to do this again. So that's, that's a part of it. The other part is the politics and the governing politics of it. Rise of Devils starts with the, what, what for my money is the first modern terrorist attack, which occurs on the streets of Paris in 1858, when an Italian nationalist by the name of Felice Orsini throws three percussion detonated hand grenades at the carriage of Emperor Napoleon III. And, and by percussion detonated, you just mean when it hits like the ground, then it explodes. There's no timer. Precisely, yeah. So you don't you don't need a fuse. And this is this is an innovative IED because it's both percussion detonated, which which means it's very easy to detonate. It's idiot proof, basically. You just throw it. It's also a shrapnel grenade. And the reason this is a terroristic attack is because it's not just an attempted at regicide. And if it were, it would be a rubbish way to try to to pull off a regicide because he's throwing uh, a relatively weak explosive uh, shrapnel grenade at a at a very solid wooden carriage. And and the results speak for themselves. Napoleon is, is relatively unharmed. His hat gets damaged. That's the extent. But the real damage occurs outside the carriage because Orsini and his uh, compatriots, is a, he has a team of bombers, throw these bombs into the crowd that is packed around Napoleon's carriage. And they know that, knowing damn well that when these shrapnel grenades go off, these innocent people are going to be hurt. Uh, And eight indeed die, um, and about 150 are wounded. So it's a significant terrorist attack, and it gets global media coverage uh, because... It's about the spectacle? It's the spectacle, yes. And this was something that I, I, Orsini definitely wanted because Napoleon III was not just this increasingly autocratic ruler of France, draconian and despised by radicals, but he he represented um, to, to radicals across Europe, people like Orsini, he represented a conservative order. He was the same as the Tsar, he was the same as, as uh, the, the Emperor of Austria. He, he was a representative of, of a feeling um, that, and a symbol. And so that was very much the essence of the attack. If we can attack this one guy, if, if, if three, three people you've never heard of with the bombs they made in their basement can terror, terrorize Paris, can, can, can make it, bring an emperor to his knees, then who needs a revolution? And just a couple of sentences on the, on the Paris Commune, James, just tell the listeners what that was if they're not familiar with it. So the Paris Commune is a, a collection of revolutionists who rise up at the end of the uh, Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 71, and they, they take Paris in wake of that, um, that, uh, that war, manage to hold it, not for very long, uh, a matter of weeks. And then they are um, uh, brutally suppressed by the, uh, the, the French army. 
the significance of the Paris Commune in the story is that it represents, to my mind, the last real attempt at an old school revolution, um, at least the, the last one of, of, of note. And it's, it, it's, there's a reason why after the failure of the Paris Commune, you get communards, some of whom were, were there participating in this revolution, start thinking about terrorism afterwards. They start thinking about a tactical rethink. We can't seize a city and expect to hold it, but we can detonate bombs in public spaces and further our political aims that way. We can uh, get into a long war, basically, rather than an acute uprising. I just wonder, uh, James, uh, could you help our listeners just understand this in a, in a broader historical context? So, you know, you're, you're the expert here. I'm just pulling on a few threads that I can think of. So... Uh, we've got the American Revolution, we've got the French Revolution, rights of man and the citizen. This is quite a revolutionary challenge to the existing order in Europe. How should people be governed? What rights should the the average person on the street have? And, you know, we have the French Revolutionary and then Napoleonic Wars. And after Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo, the genie's back in the bottle. And you have uh, Castlereagh and uh, Metternich and Talleyrand and all of these people who are arch conservatives. They want to make sure that there's not going to be any more agitation. But across these societies in general, there is a move, like in the UK, to spread the franchise, more and more people should have the right to vote. And and how much are communism and nihilism, are they pathologies of this broader effort to change uh, political systems and the way that individual citizens relate to the power structures? And, and I'm, I'm also thinking of the rise of nationalism until 1861, there's no such thing as Italy as we as, as a formal state. 1871, I think, for Germany, and, and and this is part of it. So, so I guess I'm asking you to summarize this period within the context of the long 19th century, 1789 to 1914. Like, what? Where does all of this stuff come from? What are the the the, the deeper historical processes that are driving all of this stuff? Well, this is a period of exceptional political and societal change. And as you mentioned, when the French Revolution unleashes these, these quite dangerous ideas um, of uh, what becomes socialism, nationalism, liberalism, um, they manifest in different ways, but there, there's too many attempts to suppress them after Napoleon's defeat in 1815 with the Congress of Vienna, um, which was this attempt to try and put the genie back in the bottle and pretend basically like the French Revolution never happened and these ideas were never unleashed. Arguably, it's the attempts by states in Europe to ignore the the interest in these new ideas, and particularly national self-determination that underpins what happens in 1848 when you get this outburst of, of revolutions across Europe, um, most of which fail, in fact, almost all of which fail. But nonetheless, they're symptomatic of this pent-up frustration, this, this desire for change, which, which pours onto the streets of, of Berlin and Paris and other cities besides. And what I argue in the book is that when that revolution fails in 1848, the revolutionaries, and it doesn't matter what they believe in, if they're of the socialist bent or the nationalist bent, they have a rethink about how they're going to do things. And this is what leads to the first 
attempts at, at terrorism. Orsini was an Italian nationalist. He wanted Italian unification. Uh, conversely, you've got German nationalists who are trying to, to uh, pull off assassinations at this time uh, because they're angry that, that the German uh, unification project isn't going fast enough. So they're trying to shoot Otto von Bismarck. In Russia, it's slightly different, whereas it's a, it's a restlessness against a system that seems to be mired in almost medieval traditions. So Russia is a bit unique. It's not going through exactly the same things as Europe, but the manifestations are still the same. And, and ultimately, it's about the movement of knowledge. The Russians are able to know what, um, because of the dissemination of literature and so forth, newspapers, they're able to figure out what radical thinkers in, in France and, and Italy are thinking and to share ideas. And this is a, an underpinning part of Rise of Devils. And indeed, of this whole period is that it's the ideas that are driving all of this and the fact that we're during this period, the capacity to share these ideas, the way in which knowledge can be transferred around the world. This is the era where telegraph is being developed and, and you're able to have global communications. Newspapers are being published on, on a scale never before seen. Um, it's cheap, getting cheaper and easier to publish your own stuff. People are becoming more literate. And when that happens, ideas are going to get out there. Uh, it's comparable to our own age with the internet. Um, you, have the, you have the technology catches up with ideas, and all of a sudden you have this explosion. And it doesn't necessarily end well, because a lot of ideas floating around leads to a, a, lot, of, a lot of action, not always well thought, thought through. And that's really what's driving the, this wave during this period, and also the fact that reforms themselves are quite sluggish. France goes through all kinds of convulsions during this period where there are attempts to liberalize and then they are shut down. Napoleon is, is Napoleon III is very much like that. He kind of waxes and wanes about whether or not he wants to suppress or whether or not he wants to embrace. After the Paris Commune, there's a reactionary swing in France, which engenders a whole new generation of, of revolutionaries, the ones who in the 1890s become the anarchists, basically. So these waves of, of repression that, that feed into discontent and, and create more radical strains of discontent, that is a process that's really observable during this period. And it's one that I think, I think you, the reason why this is the, the age of the first real age of terrorism is because you have all this stuff coming together, communications that you need to promote terrorist activities to gain the attention you need, Dis societal discontent, dangerous ideas, and it's all moving around in the same in, together in, as part of this same process. Just to close off, uh, James, so your book, Rise of Devils, Fear in the Origins of Modern Terrorism. I think just as a, uh, just put it in summary, I think that anyone who wants to understand the broad strokes of terrorism, how it functions, how it works, and to understand something about the mechanics of, of fear and, and, and the, the news cycle and, and, and how that feeds into societal anxieties. And something that struck me when I was writing this book is how so much of this feels like today. Um, the, the resonances hit me over the head repeatedly. Everything from fake news and the dangers of that to self-radicalization 
sort of fears about the um, extent of police powers to the development of intelligence and, and, and international policing. There is so much that that, that resonates, um, and that to me is 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 one of the reasons why the the book works so well is because it is both a history book, but it also feels in many ways like a history of our own times. Mm. Well, congratulations on the book, and I have to say, uh, it's very well written as well. Uh, I think that you're a, you're a good writer, which isn't Thank necessarily always the case, right? Uh, a good but, history is always a good story. It's it's my mantra. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, thanks ever so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL SpyCast. Coming up in next week's show. They said, guys, we're going to have to cut off the Australians. And when Australia was cut off, we were downgraded. Uh, our access after the Second World War, when we were trusted intimately, was, was wound right back. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, and my podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Von III, Emily Coletta, Emily Renz, Afu Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Iben. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. Hey listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.